Welcome back. Pleasure to be uh, speaking to you today. We are going through the, the book of Matthew in the Bible, and the passage today is about the calling of Matthew. And uh, my name is Matt Carvel, if you're new here. So this could well be the uh, sermon I was born to preach. So I hope you're ready for that, but welcome to if you are new. We're going to launch right into uh, the passage here, and it's going to come up on the screen, Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you have been with us over the last few weeks, uh, what we have seen in the life of Jesus is many different spectacular, uh, miraculous things that he has done. We've seen Jesus uh, heal the sick. He's cleansed lepers. He's raised the paralytics. We've seen him um, forgive sins. We've seen him cast out demons, and we've seen him calming the storm uh, with, with just a word. Spectacular stuff. And by contrast, this passage is fairly ordinary, fairly pedestrian, I think. And really, there's not much in here that's controversial. Um, I think I could be preaching this message anywhere, maybe uh, in Brighton, even in the lanes, and bring this kind of passage uh, to people, and people would be like, yeah, that Jesus is the kind of Jesus that we like. Because here we have a guy called Matthew who is, well, he's an unpopular guy, he's a, he's a tax collector, maybe ostracized by the community. And Jesus comes along and Jesus is a nice guy. Jesus reaches out to him. Jesus is the, the tolerant one, the progressive one, the one that's ahead of his time. And instead of casting out this guy called Matthew, no, Jesus welcomes him and actually spends time with him. What a guy. And you got the Pharisees. Well, we, no one likes the Pharisees. They're the, they're the bigoted ones. They're the judgmental ones. They're the ones that stand and point the finger. And we, we don't like them. We don't like to be like them. We don't like those type of people in our society. There's plenty that in here that's very popular. Very, this passage kind of fits in very much to... Um, our society in which we live, there's nothing really offensive here. And, uh, you know, we might be on for an early lunch here because there's, 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 there's not much here really, is there? I mean, it's great. You know, be like Jesus, be tolerant, be nice to people, be accepting of others, don't be judgmental. And, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty much done here. We don't get this passage because actually this is shocking. This is a passage that actually, I think, to many people around Jesus, they would have thought about what he did here as much more shocking than his healings that we've read about in the previous passages. Because if you were to believe in God, you, you believe in the miraculous by definition. 
And so even if you accept the idea that God might exist, you think, well, yeah, okay, healings in the Bible, that's nothing that shocking to us. Might be unusual, but it's not shocking. But actually, the way Jesus behaves, when we really understand what's going on here, is far more shocking than we realize. But instinctively, when we just read this, when I read this, I just think, wow, it's a fairly ordinary passage. We bring all our preconceived ideas of what's good behavior and who are the bad people and who are the the good people, and we fit ourselves into that story and we say, well, we're kind of like Jesus, we're nice to people, and we're not like the Pharisees, and we're not like Matthew, maybe. Or maybe we feel like Matthew, but we'll try and be a bit more like Jesus. Now, actually, when we get into this passage... And we realize the extent of what Jesus is actually doing here. Hopefully we will be shocked. We'll be shocked by what it reveals about who God is and what he is like. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on these different characters. We're going to focus on Matthew. We're going to focus on the Pharisees and Jesus. And really get into what they are like and what they are going through. And what that really means for us. Let's start with Matthew, this tax collector. You know, a few months ago, um, Donald Tusk, who was the president of the European Council, he sort of made headlines, very deliberately so, I think, um, when he said, I'm wondering what a special place in hell looks like for those people that proposed Brexit without a plan to follow it through. And um, obviously just being very provocative there and uh, grabbed the headlines and people were outraged uh, by this. And it was slightly ironic, I think, by an amount of people who were outraged who would probably also say they don't even believe in hell. And so slightly ironic, the sort of saying that he was suggesting they would go to a place they don't even exist. Um, but it's, it's a funny phrase, and it was quite unusual. Um, and the, the, Particularly the fact that he sort of said a special place in hell. This sort of the idea that there's different categories of hell based on what people have done and how deserving of judgment they might be. And this is an idea that's gone through the centuries, really. And obviously, according to Donald Tusk, at least, is still around. But maybe the most famous depiction of this was in the 14th century of Dante's great work, the Divine Comedy, and the part that was the Inferno where Dante was sort of uh, depicting these different levels of, of hell, different circles. And um, as you descended further and further down, it was uh, more and more serious crimes, more and more sinful things that got you closer and closer towards the devil himself who was the bottom. And it's an interesting thing when you look at it to see what type of sins or wrongdoing are towards the top. So they're bad, but they're not really bad. And what are towards the bottom? At the, the sort of upper layers of hell, according to Dante at least, uh, you've got things like greed and gluttony, which are bad, but they're not really bad. And I think actually, even though we probably live in a society that people um, would say they don't like to think about hell or maybe we don't believe in hell, but we still have the idea of there's some things that are wrong, but... They're not as wrong as other things. Some things that are bad, but are not as bad as other things. And maybe we'd, we'd agree with Dante that, you know, greed, that's not a great thing. But it's not a terrible, terrible thing. So maybe it should be towards the upper layers uh, in, in his depiction there. But it's interesting as you go down, level seven, according to Dante, is violence. 
So in that category of people that end up in that part of hell would be the murderers, the violent. That's getting right down there. But underneath that, maybe unusually to our eyes, would be fraudsters. They are below the violent murderers. And below that even, on the last level below and next to the devil himself, would be traitors. That's quite unusual for us. Traitors. Are they really the worst type of people? I think in our society, as I say, we don't have this idea of different levels of hell maybe, but we'd have different ideas about who are the worst types of people, who really are the worst of the worst, the most vilest offenders in our society. And we would probably have, yes, the, the murderers, maybe child murderers, rapists, pedophiles. They would be the worst. They're the scum of the earth. That would be our categorizing of it, probably. But it's interesting that Danza has the traitors right at the bottom. And I think in Jesus' time and his culture and society, I think they might actually have a quite a similar idea to that. You know, think about the community of Jesus, the Jewish people, their identity, who they were, was very much wrapped up in God. They were God's chosen people. And anyone who would betray their people were not just betraying other people, they were betraying God himself and all the promises that he had called them to. And Matthew was in that category. He was a traitor to his own people. Because as a tax collector, he wasn't just an unpopular kind of guy that took money from people. No, he was taking money from his brothers and sisters. He was making them poor in order to enrich himself and also give money to their sworn enemies, the people that oppressed them. The people, the Romans, who were getting in the way of all the promises being fulfilled that they believed in from God. Or that's the way they would have seen it, at least. Matthew is not just a down-on-his-luck guy who's a bit unpopular with people. No, actually, I think Matthew would have been deemed as, this is, this is the scum of the earth. This is the most vile person that could be. He's, he's, he's taking food from our children's mouths in order to give, it, give money to our enemies. And Matthew would have been deemed as someone who's beyond redemption. Beyond, there's no hope for that kind of person. Matthew's a shameful person. And he's living in open shame, protected by the Romans, the occupying power, but would have been hated by his own people. And just imagine that for us in our society, whoever we deem, whichever type of criminal or offender we would deem as the worst of the worst. And imagine if they were living on your street. Imagine they were living a few doors down from you and you walk, had to walk past their house every day. Or you bumped into them in the supermarket and you knew what they were like and you knew what they had done. How would you respond to them? How would you feel about that type of person? They're, that's a shameful type of person. 
And we can only speculate, but I imagine Matthew would have felt that shame from other people put on him. He would be hated by others, but I'm sure would have felt it himself as well. He would be living with an internal sense of shame about what he had done in the position in society he had. He had cashed in his reputation, his acceptance of others to make himself rich. All all that he cared about was getting the money and probably would live on his own in retirement after gathering wealth to himself. But I'm sure that he would have felt a huge amount of shame about who he was. He would have felt horrible, I'm sure. And sometimes we can feel shame and it's shame to do with what we have done. And that almost compounds it. It's our decision. The things that we have done in the past that have led us to feel so shameful and so horrible. And maybe other people know it and we feel ashamed. Maybe people around us don't know it, but we don't want them to know. And we hold other people at arm's length because we think, if they knew what I had done, they would think I'm vile. They would think I'm horrible. They would want nothing to do with me. That's the type of person that Matthew is. And therefore it is shocking that Jesus walks past other people to spend time with Matthew. And even calls Matthew to be part of one of his disciples and part of Jesus' hand-picked community. Jesus has gone from heaven itself and come into the world and even in his his life he's born into a situation that others would have seen as shameful there was huge question marks over his birth the in John chapter 10 it it talks about how people had that through the accusation about to Jesus you were born from adultery or fornication you were shameful And Jesus lived the first part of his life with that shame. But then he comes into ministry and people, he's still got that stigma. People say, Nazareth, he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? But yet slowly, slowly he gains attention from people through his ministry, through his healing, through his teaching. He gains some reputation with others. He gains popularity maybe. The crowds gather to him. And he takes all that good standing that he's earned and he cashes it all in. He cashes it all in to associate himself with Matthew. He takes on that shame himself by associating with someone as shameful as Matthew. And so that's good news for us if we feel ashamed today. If we're ashamed of what we've done, if we're ashamed of who we are You're exactly the type of person that Jesus comes to. That's Matthew. What about the Pharisees? Let's think about them and their judgmental attitudes. You know, I was in uh, in school at the sort of time of the beginning of the 21st century, as it were, and uh, I remember at that time there was a huge amount of talk of multiculturalism and globalization. And the internet was going to make us into one big global village and we'd all get along and hold hands around the world and everything would be, would be great. And we would have this really tolerant society. And I think that started to quickly get eroded when the internet brought us social media. 
And suddenly this idea that we all liked each other and we all were going to get along, social media crops up and people say what they really think about each other. And we see all this horribleness and we see all this uh, insulting and nastiness and divisiveness when people get the opportunity to sit behind a keyboard and say what they really think about others. And that was a real contrast, I think, at that time. And we can easily point the finger and say, oh, those trolls online, they're the judgmental people. They see what happens and they're nasty and they're horrible. And I think we can point the finger at them, but in that we're being judgmental. And we have to be careful, I think, because actually maybe we don't sit behind a keyboard and be nasty. But I think we've got a lot more similarity with the Pharisees and their judgmentalism than we realize. Maybe we don't post it online, but we think it. I think we're more like the Pharisees than we, we realize, and I include myself in this. We finger point all the time. And I think we see this in the society that we live all around us. The public discourse is it's laced with this idea that other people are the problem. And we can easily get into this uh, way of thinking in our personal views uh, of the way we see the world. The other people, people in that category, in that camp are the problem, which is exactly what the Pharisees were like. They said, the tax collectors, why is Jesus associating with them? They're the problem with our society. They're the betrayers. And we live in a time where we have our opinions and other people who don't share the, our opinions, they're the problem. And it happens on every single different side. If we're people who are pro-independent business, not a bad thing maybe, but that can quickly morph into the multinationals. They're not just wrong, they're evil. They are the problem with the world. If we read The Guardian, The Daily Mail, they're the, they're the evil ones and vice versa. If we're passionate about social issues, those people who are apathetic and don't care about it, they're the problem with society. If we're spiritual people, organized religion are the problem. They're evil. If we are state-educated, lower-middle-class people, the upper class, the pr privately educated, they are the ones that are the problem. And it can happen each different way and from each different side. Maybe we're pro-Brexit. The Ramonas, they're evil. They're the problem. If we're politically moderate, the Corbynites, they're the problem. We point the finger all the time. We think we're in this camp, they're in that camp, they're the problem. And that finger pointing is part of what's going on here. And we think, oh, okay, Matt, you're being... I'm not like that, though. I'm not someone who writes blogs or writes the newspaper or whatever. Are we all just as bad as each other? Okay, well, let's take it down to a personal level. Who do we blame for the inconveniences and problems in our lives. Because that's what this comes down to, is finger pointing. And it's easy to not be judgmental until someone does something that inconveniences us. Or until someone does something that hurts us or offends us. And then quickly we can make judgments about them and point the finger at them. And really what we're doing is we're saying, I'm not like they are. I'm more righteous than they are. You know, maybe you're at work and it's your turn to, it's your meeting. 
You're chairing the meeting and someone just waltzes in 10 minutes late. Oof. Don't they respect me? It's my meeting. Everyone else is here on time. I organize this. Maybe we don't say it, but we think it. Who do they think they are? Or if you're in the workplace, maybe it's the management. Management are the problem. They don't understand. They sit in their comfy chairs and, and make decisions and don't care about the little guy. Maybe it's in your house, your housemate, who just doesn't clean up after themselves. What are they like? Don't they respect me? Don't they respect this house? Or the family member who says something rude or inappropriate in the family WhatsApp group. Don't they understand the impact that they're having here? And all through that, it's not just that you've been slightly offended. It's, I'm righteous. I would never do that. And they would do that. Because that's what they're like. And I'm not like that. How dare they? How dare they inconvenience me? Or even in what about a situation you come in from a really hard day at work and your spouse does not immediately ask you how your day was? Don't they care about me? I've been slaving all day and going through all these problems and they just take me for granted and they're the problem in my marriage. They're the problem in my household. We're so quick to point the finger at other people and think they're the problem. They are the issue. They need to sort themselves out. If they were more like me, the world would be at a better place. I think we're all in this category of being judgmental. You know, people who don't maybe know the Bible, but love to pick out the verse where Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. And that's a favorite verse because, oh, you know, let's not be judgmental of one another. No, no, what Jesus is saying there is, you people cannot help judging others. He's saying, you do it every single day. Someone walks in the room wearing slightly, something slightly different than usual, and you're immediately making judgments about them. No, we, our hearts are instinctively judgmental. And Jesus is saying, you can't help judging. How, how do you pretend that God is not going to be a judge of you when you are judging others all around you constantly all day long? We like to pretend we live in a tolerant society. Everyone just gets on and we like each other. No, no, internally, if not externally, externally we're making judgments all the time. And especially when others inconvenience or hurt us. Because don't think that the Pharisees are not hurt by Jesus here. I really think they are because Jesus walked straight past them to spend time with Matthew. And if you go back to that picture I painted before about that horrible criminal maybe who lives on your street a few doors down. Imagine Jesus coming to your street. The most famous person. The most wonderful person. He comes to your street and he walks right past your door to go and have a barbecue with them and spend time with them and get to know them. How would you feel about that? How are they deserving? I'm more deserving than they are. That's exactly what the Pharisees are thinking. Why is Jesus spending time with them? He could be spending time with us. If that happened to me, it would make me sick. But the good news for us is that Jesus says, I have come for those who are sick. Whether they're shameful or whether they're judgmental in their heart, both are undeserving of grace, but Jesus 
wants to extend mercy to them. You know, Matthew and the Pharisees are just equally guilty of sin, equally shameful maybe in their own way. And the difference between them is when Jesus comes and Jesus calls, Matthew responds in faith. He's ready to receive mercy because he recognizes his need for it. And that's the only difference. The Pharisee, Matthew is not any more deserving of Jesus' friendship than the Pharisees are. But Jesus has harsh things to say to the Pharisees because he knows they're not ready to receive mercy. They're still stuck in their pride. They're not recognizing that their heart is sick. And so when the healer comes, they don't come to him. They keep him at arm's length and criticize from afar. But Matthew, to his credit, he responds in faith. And that's what Jesus invites us to do, to recognize our need of Jesus and respond when we hear his call. It's not clean up your act, Matthew. Yes, he does walk away from the tax booth. But we've already seen how in the previous passages, how Jesus called many people and said, come and follow me. And people said, oh, let me just do this first. Let me just do this first. I'm going to sort this out. Matthew doesn't do that. He says, well, he doesn't say anything. He says, he, he, he walks to Jesus straight away. He rose and he followed him. And so let's, in this final section, let's just focus on Jesus and, and really also the transformation that he brings about in Matthew. Jesus reveals himself as, as the great physician here. For those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, we all need a healer. And it's interesting what Jesus says here. What he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Sometimes we come across these kind of verses in the New Testament and we think, oh, is this one of these places where the God of the New Testament seems to be different from the God of the Old Testament? Because it seems like, Jesus is saying, I desire mercy. It's, it's, I want to show grace to people. It's not about sacrifice. It's about mercy. And we think, well, what, the Old Testament, that was full of sacrificial system. And is that just out the window now? Jesus is the nice God and the Old Testament God is the angry God that wants them to do sacrifices all the time. Although, let's think more carefully about what it says here. Jesus is actually already quoting from the Old Testament. You'll see that at the bottom of your Bibles from Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because God was correcting his people for their misunderstanding of the law in the first place. What the law was about was to show the people their need for mercy. And the whole sacrificial system was to be a regular reminder that they needed to come to God for the guilt of their sin and their shame and bring a sacrifice to God. And they had to do that again and again and again. And the whole point was to underline to them that they needed God's mercy. They needed grace from God. The Old Testament is full of God's mercy because God forgave them again and again and again and even had this whole system to remind them and to show that he was a merciful and forgiving God again and again. There is plenty of mercy in the Old Testament. And what about sacrifice? Is there no sacrifice in the New Testament? There's the ultimate sacrifice in the New Testament. 
Jesus is saying, I am the one who brings mercy through the sacrifice of my life. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. What we're seeing here in this passage is a a mini picture of the cross. And in this verse, Jesus is pointing to that. Jesus comes to a man called Matthew who is shameful. And on the cross, Jesus died a shameful death. He died a criminal's death. And just as he is associated, Jesus is associating himself with an outcast here. He dies a shameful and a sinner's death on the cross. And also he's under the judgment of God on the cross as well. He's dying for sinners. He's dying under the judgment of God, which sheds a new light on the judgmental attitudes of the Pharisees. This is a picture of the cross and Jesus' ultimate sacrifice for us. Dies for the shameful, dies for the judgmental and the sinner. And why does he do it? He does it so that people like you and me can share bread, share the table with Jesus. To have friendship with Jesus. That's why he goes to the cross. So we can have a friendship with God. It's what the word companion literally means, someone to share bread with. And this wonderful picture of the communion table where we receive the bread and the wine that point to Jesus' sacrifice so we can enter into friendship with God. We receive from Jesus so we can be known as friends of God. Jesus truly is the friend of sinners. And that's what he's demonstrating in this passage Just as we close, I want to just spend a a few moments thinking about the way that Matthew is transformed because Matthew's story, his life story, is a shocking one, as I've said, and an incredible one. First of all, we see in this passage that the grace and mercy that Jesus shows to Matthew transforms his attitude to money. I've already said Matthew's security in life was the money that he had. He'd made himself rich. He'd, he'd, family, friends, everyone else would have left him, but he had his money. That was his security. But he walks away from the tax booth at the word of Jesus. The most precious thing in his life, he walks away from it straight away. And just think about the financial cost and the risk that Matthew is undergoing there. It's different to the other disciples even. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and the disciples were, didn't know what to do with themselves, Peter said, well, why don't we go fishing? And they went back. Those who were fishermen went back to their uh, original employment, as it were. Matthew didn't have that option. He couldn't go back. He couldn't go back to being a tax collector. No, he had thrown his lot in completely with Jesus. That transformed his attitude. Money is not important compared to Jesus. And we see that in another example when Jesus uh, speaks to Zacchaeus. And you see it vividly. Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'll give them back. And then again, his heart is transformed when he receives grace from Jesus. 
And Jesus calls Matthew to walk with him. And I believe it's implied here that Matthew would have transformed morally as well. Not looking to his own interests, but following in the ways of God. And that's what happens when we respond to the call of God to follow Jesus. We can't do the same things we did before. We can't think the same way we thought before. God calls us into a relationship with us, with him that transforms us. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says in Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they're agreed? And to believe in Jesus and to follow him is not just to agree that he's out there and have a relationship from a distance. No, no, Jesus is inviting Matthew to walk with him. And therefore, we enter into a process of our lives transforming to become more and more into agreement with Jesus because he's right and we're not in the way that we think, in the way that we act, in the way that we speak. He transforms his attitude to money and importance. He transforms his attitude and his, his morals, probably. But I think most wonderfully of all, Jesus, in the grace that he shows to Matthew, transforms his the skills and the talents that Matthew has. And he takes them from being used for an ignoble purpose to a wonderful purpose. You see, to be a tax collector, Matthew would have had to be an educated person. He would have had skills, he would have trained, he would have probably been familiar with a number of languages. He was practiced in record-keeping. And when you think about his life and you think about God's perspective on his life, can you see Matthew sitting in that tax booth, working away for himself for many years, and God just smiling over him, biding his time, that those skills that he was developing and using, God was going to step in and use for his purposes. Because Matthew is the author of this book. Matthew is the one that wrote this gospel. He goes from being a tax collector to be a gospel writer and everything that he had learned about record keeping, God uses and transforms into a new purpose to bring the good news of Jesus to the world. How many millions, if not billions of people have read Matthew's words about Jesus and found life because of him? And Matthew is just so aware of where God has taken him, the shameful start to this wonderful redemption that he experiences. You know, even in a later passage in Matthew, when um, we'll get on to when um, the disciples are listed, most of them, are exactly who there are, is not said, it's just said their names, but Matthew writes of himself, Matthew, the tax collector, just in case you had forgotten. He was just so aware of the grace that God had bestowed on his life that he gets to be not just a disciple of Jesus, but someone that shares Jesus with others as well. What a redemption story for Matthew. You know, we talk in, in Brighton a lot of the time, uh, craze of uh, upcycling. 
which is different to recycling. Recycling is where you take something that's ordinary and waste even and reuse it. But upcycling is different. Upcycling is where you take something ordinary and make something more useful and more wonderful. Taking rubbish and making something that's artistic. Taking something that's just very average and making it into something that's really useful. That's upcycling and that is what God loves to do with people like you. He takes the ordinary. He takes your gifts and talents. He takes things that even you thought were about you and you were using them and the gifts and the skills that you had and you were using them for yourself. And he says, I've got a better plan for you. You're going to use them in my kingdom. And they're going to be used in a way that you can't even imagine and bless many people that you don't even know and will never know. But that's what God is like. And that's what happens when God befriends someone. He transforms them. And as I was preparing this, I was reflecting on this verse from 1 Corinthians 1.9, which I think really just sums up what Matthew has come into here. God is faithful, it says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because this passage in your Bible is, like in mine, it's probably called the calling of Matthew. But really it's all about the befriending of Matthew. The shocking fact that God wants to befriend someone like Matthew. And by extension, God wants to befriend someone like you. And that might seem surprising. Maybe you had an idea of the Bible of just being a story about God who wants us to do certain things and act in a certain way. Well, you've not really understood the Bible then because even from the first page, it talks about how God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And throughout even the book of Genesis, you have different characters, different people who God gets to know and it says they became friends of God. Abraham was a friend of God. And different people, even Enoch and Noah, the way it describes them is people who walked with God. And that speaks of friendship. God wants to walk with us. He wants to, us to walk with him, walk in his ways, walk in friendship. The God who created all things invites people like Matthew, even people like the Pharisees and people like you and me to walk in friendship with him. Jesus truly is the friend of sinners. And so today, if you're feeling shameful, if I've made you aware of judgmental attitudes in your life, and I hope I have. I've certainly made myself aware this week as I've been reflecting on this. If you're aware of your sinfulness, if you're aware of the sickness in your life, then cling closely to the great physician who has been the sacrifice for our shame and for our sin in order that we might receive mercy from God and be befriended by him.